This Thursday is Thanksgiving, which is uh, one of the holidays here in the United States. Thanksgiving has been going on for, for quite some time. Uh, but in terms of establishing the date of Thanksgiving in this country, it goes back to uh, 1863 when uh, President Abraham Lincoln issued a proclamation setting the, the date of Thanksgiving. Amazingly enough, that happened right in the middle of the Civil War. And that, for me, illustrates one of the things that's true about most Thanksgiving celebrations. And that is that they happen out of suffering. Suffering moves us. Suffering really challenges us. Suffering causes us to say, what's going on here? And uh, when we are delivered from suffering, there's very few of us that don't, uh, that don't feel that, uh, the need to give some thanks. We've been studying the book of Exodus in this church. Is there some suffering in Exodus? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, which of you would like to respond to suffering like Pharaoh did? Any hands? Anybody want to be like Pharaoh? Yeah. Um, he basically told God off, right? How'd that work out for him? Not so good. And yet we see God's amazing, amazing tolerance, amazing patience, amazing long, long, long suffering with the people of Israel in order to bring them out. Interestingly enough, as we look at the Gospels, one of the major reasons that people responded to Jesus was because of the suffering in their lives. And he was able, in many ways, to help people with their suffering. Dealing with suffering is an, an important element of life on this planet. Now, how many of you like suffering? How many of you, you know, in the last two weeks or so, went down to Walmart and bought a package on how to suffer? Suffering is not something we look forward to. And most of us try to ignore it. We try to hope it'll never come. And yet, suffering does come, whether we like it or not. I'm going to talk about uh, suffering this morning. And I'm going to use three illustrations as I go through it. I'm going to tell some old high school football stories. You're probably tired of me doing that, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to talk some about mothers. <clears throat> and uh, then I'm going to talk about uh, being di diagnosed with diabetes this last summer. So those three illustrations will come up. We're going to talk about suffering proves that he loves us. Suffering leads us to repent. And suffering shows us God. So suffering shows, suffering proves that he loves us. And uh, you can look at your church Bibles in page 653 if you want. I'm going to be reading Hebrews 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
Now, if you want to read this whole passage, it talks about how fathers um, deal with us and how fathers discipline us. In, uh, in Earlier in the passage, it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastises every son he receives. So the writer of Hebrews here compares the suffering that we go through in this life from God with the discipline that we receive from a father. Now, one of the, the problems in our society is that at times father can, fathers can be abusive. Okay, we're not talking about that. We're not saying that that's a, that's a good thing at all. Another thing, and I think that this is actually much more common in our society, and as bad as abusive fathers are, Something that may be even worse, and certainly is more widespread, and that's fathers who neglect their children. And we get so busy, and our lives get full of such uh, so many things, and we neglect the time that we should spend with our kids. I know one father uh, who really loves his kids, and he's he's been thinking about. This uh, overseas vacation is going to cost thousands of dollars. It's going to just be fantastic. None of his kids are old enough to remember it. What is that vacation actually going to be like for his kids? They're going to be out doing all these things, seeing all these wonderful sights, and dragging them kids behind them, right? You as younger children, uh, I'm sure, have had experiences of, of doing things like that. You can be very, very busy as a father and yet be neglectful of your children. Fortunately, God is not like that with us. He's like the father who loves his son and who takes the time and the energy that takes them to train them well. God is neither abusive nor neglectful. He is very attentive to us. We may resent his correction, but that's our problem, not his. Say, uh, say you had uh, kids and your kid was going to do something very dangerous. How would you feel if they got hurt? Well, you'd feel pretty bad, right? So what do you do to try to, when you see your kids doing something? Well, you immediately feel like you need to get up and go head them in the right direction. And uh, all of us have had that experience of, uh, as parents of seeing our kids uh, get hurt. And that is certainly not any fun. And that motivates the good parent to make sure that doesn't happen again. What would you think of a God whose children were headed straight for destruction and didn't do anything to bring them back? Would that be a good God? No, that would be an evil God. What we have is a God whose children are in rebellion against him. And that rebellion is going to lead us to ultimate disaster. What would you do if you saw your kids 
doing something that was that was going to destroy their lives, would you intervene at whatever level was necessary? Yeah, absolutely. So people, people, so many, so many times they look at at, at God and they look at the pe- suffering that people go through, and they say, "Well, if God was loving, He would have stopped that." Well, actually, He's trying to get our attention to help us. We don't want to listen. Let me ask you kids something. Are all of you kids here still here this Sunday? Okay. So how many of you kids, wave your hand in the air if this is true, how many of you kids like being disciplined by your parents? All of you that like being disciplined, nobody's raising their hand. Why is that? Of course it's good for you. Isn't it good for your parents to discipline you? Yes, it is. But you don't like it, right? That's the point. That's the point. The most important thing you can learn as a child is that you do not have to give in to your feelings. The most important thing of of raising your kids and the most important thing that that discipline can give them is that ability to say no to rampant feelings. What happens to a child who has never learned to say no to his feelings? He becomes a monster. And that's that's really true. If you cannot control your feelings, what what do we say? What do we what do you say when you see another child who just gives in to his feelings? He cries, he whines, he's a mess. We say, Don't be a big baby. That's what we say, right? So learn, children, learn to control your feelings. And we as uh, grown-ups, we've learned to, uh, to hide our feelings. And we learn not to moan and groan. At least we do in a more genteel, sophisticated way. But we still have the same problems. We still are tempted to be a big baby. In high school, the high school that I went to, had been at the absolute bottom of our district in uh, in football. Um, we had won one game, so we weren't a total washout, but we lost all the rest of them. We 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 stunk. We were really bad. And uh, I, uh, for the first couple of years when I was on the football team, it was freshman league and then intervars or, or um, junior varsity. Um, and but yet I knew how that coach coached, and he worked the team hard, calisthenics, drills, on and on and on. And uh, we we just assumed that the reason we were losing losing is we were such deadbeats, right? Then we got Coach Waldorf. Coach Waldorf retired as a college coach after having won his district. For three straight years, he came to the college. His his college team was at the bottom of the league. And years later, when he retired from that college, they were at the top for three straight years. 
He came to my high school. Why did he do that? Well, I'm not sure totally, but I believe the reason was his faith that moved him to be more of a pastor to his team than than a coach. I believe he actually loved us. He had extremely high standards, and we loved him for it. He never let us do less than our than our best. And he immediately cut out all of those calisthenic and hard workout drills. How and what happened? Well, you'll have to wait and hear the rest of the story. You know, sometimes there are women who are unable to have children. And that, that issue is more common than we like to think it is, but it, it definitely happens. And very often, those women deeply mourn the loss of not being able to have children. Now, why is that? It's because they love children and they want to sacrifice for them. Can you imagine that? Somebody actually wanting to go through the suffering of childbirth? Now, the reason I bring that up is it's really not that strange to want to go through suffering. Every one of us that has been born into this world came into it through somebody's suffering. And then finally, diabetes. This summer I was diagnosed with diabetes. <clears throat> and there's different ways you can look at that. Most people don't look at that as a lot of good news. I chose to see my diabetes as a signal from God that I could not ignore about losing weight. I'll explain more about that to you as we go. The suffering proves that he loves us. Suffering leads us to repentance. How does suffering lead us to repentance? In the church Bible, in page 628, or for those of you that know the The verse numbers, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. We don't often think about this, but Paul was willing to grieve the Corinthians. Now, why was that? And normally when you're trying to win people over like Paul wanted to do with the Corinthians, you don't make them sad. That's what it means to make them grieve. And the thing is, he did it on purpose. Paul, he's a Christian. He's not supposed to make people sad on purpose. He says he did. Read it sometime. He knew that it was better to to grieve them for a little while in this life than to speed their way to destruction. It's better that we grieve for a little while than that we long term end up in a bad place. Second Peter uh, 3, verse 9, I didn't write down the page number in, in the church Bible, but Second Peter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Why does God let suffering go on for years and years and years? Why? It's, it's because he lets life go on for years and years and years. And he's being patient and helping us to get the message. Have you, any of you ever had difficulty learning a lesson? <laughs> yeah. Learning is not particularly easy. Learning involves, first of all, admitting that you're wrong. How many of you enjoy admitting that you're wrong? I'm just not getting any hands in the ears today. I don't know what's wrong with me. And God is very patient to give us a chance to re-repentance. He doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't enjoy seeing people hurt. But he would much rather see them delivered And to do that, they need to repent. Sadly, not all will repent, but some will turn around, and that is very good for all concerned. Suffering leads us to repentance. Um, Back to my illustration, high school football. Uh, With Coach Waldorf, as I mentioned, our workouts were not really physically exhausting. But they were mentally totally exhausting. He, (laughs) you're not going to believe this. He went on in that football field and showed us exactly where within that 100 yards by 50 yards or so, our footballs were supposed to happen. He went out there with a ruler and measured. I'm not not kidding you. We're out there and we're practicing football, right? You know, that kind of thing. And he's out there on the ground with a ruler saying, no, nope, no, nope, you missed it. <laughs> but coach, he had exact assignments. An example, our football team, we were outweighed in the line by an average of 20 pounds a man. Now, do you know what that means? That means you get out there to play football and you look across and everybody on the other side is taller and bigger. <laughs> that's not, that's, you know, what can I say? That, that's not a whole lot of fun. Our coach, our coach taught us how to move on the snap of the ball. How many of you ever heard of a coach teaching people to do that? You'd think people would get it, right? <laughs> what he did was he taught us to always move on, on account of four. But to actually move on four, you have to leave at three and a half. You have to, right? So we would sit th- sit there and practice this. Oh, I can't tell you how many times we practice this. One, two, three, four. And you're actually hitting the other guy at four, right? <laughs> we got so good at that, you can see it in the films. When they would hike the ball, we would move their whole line back by a, at least two yards, sometimes three. I mean, we got two, three yards on every play just by hiking the ball. That's a little insane. Other teams started catching on to that, you know. (laughs) They don't like that happening to them. So they started doing the same thing, you know, going a little early so they could meet us halfway. (laughs) And we always knew that would happen, see, because coach told us what to do. He would wait until we needed five yards. You know, it's like second and four or something like that. (laughs) 
And he'd, he'd call a play, he'd send it in from the sidelines, and he'd say, go on, six. And we all knew that that meant we weren't actually going to run a play. We were just going to go, whoop, two, three, four, five, six. And, and, and we just got ready to catch him. And you can see it in the films. A whole line would launch onto us. Flags would go up everywhere. It's five yards. How many teams practice how to get an offside penalty? This is crazy. He wouldn't let us throw a forward pass. Too often, high school teams drop the full ball. But he would practice how to get how to get a um, how to how to get an off yard penalty. <clears throat> so Coach Waldorf took the worst team in the district, and he took us to the best. We ended up instead of one and eight, eight and one, and we won the district championship. In fact, he took that team that got crushed in those previous seasons, and we had an eight yard average per play on offense across the whole season. We weren't just winning, we were blowing them away. And that was because of the discipline. It was not much fun sitting out there in the hot sun having somebody measure your footprints. I could go on and on about the things that he did to teach us these things. If you did the wrong thing, he'd get, up, he'd, he'd get right up there to you and he would start explaining how, you know, somebody that, did, you know, that was a lot younger than them could probably get that right, but he knows that you know, you're mentally challenged. And could you please pay attention? Uh, he was good. He was really good. About having babies, I remember one of our children came very late and was posterior. Um, what that means is a lot of pain for the mother. And uh, a lot of back labor. The, the baby... Uh, actually presses on the mother's backbone coming out and kind of gets stuck there. For those of you that don't know about back labor, that's not a lot of fun. Now, my job as dad was to apply counter pressure. She's in the birthing room there or whatever it was. And my job was to get my hands underneath of her and press up on her backbone, on the lower backbone, right? And so I had to get my fingers in there and push up. And as hard as I'm pushing, and I'm pushing pretty hard, she's like, harder, harder, you know. Put, can't you push? Aren't you pushing yet? <laughs> and I'm looking, and I got everything from her shoulders to her heels off of the bed and on my fingertips. <laughs> it's really starting to hurt. And she's saying, harder, harder. She, she, had, she had had the shots. This was not us trying to be stupid and, and go with that, you know, no, no, no painkiller. It, it just really hurt. I have never heard her wish that that child had not been born. I have never heard her wish that. It's because the suffering was worth it. 
diabetes. Bonnie helped me with that as well. She researched diabetes diets and found some with great promise. Um, the basic uh, idea was beans and greens. You really don't need to know a whole lot more about that. Um, and the thing about that kind of a diet is um, uh, we eliminate anything that tastes good. That's another thing. Too. <laughs> and uh, the, the, what this diet was supposed to do was um, uh, uh, supposed to hopefully get to the point where I didn't have diabetes anymore. Hasn't happened yet, but that's what they said. <clears throat> you know, the one thing about it, though, is I really miss food tasting good. <laughs> Have you ever tried that? Just eliminate everything that tastes good from your diet. But I have lost 26 pounds, and have, after three months, I had already met the doctor's goals for controls of my diabetes. Was that suffering worth it? Well, I could have had all the taste, and I had, could have had the pounds as well, and then eventually I would have ended up with toes and feet and legs being amputated. That's what diabetes does if you don't get it under control. So I guess the question comes down is, which would I miss more? Would I miss my legs or would I miss the taste? I think I'd rather miss the taste. So suffering produces, proves that God loves us. Suffering leads us to repent. And then finally, suffering shows us God. Page 567 in your church Bible and the reference is uh, Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answers them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all, all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it's not about doing good enough to please God. That's impossible, by the way. So he gives us his favor. That's what God's grace is all about. He gives us his favor. All he asks is that we repent. What does repentance mean? That means turning from whatever we trust in and hoping in God alone. <clears throat> now, that's great, a great thing. It shows us who God is, what he's like. And it's perhaps the greatest opportunity for the gospel. We all suffer in this world, and so do all of our neighbors. While, uh, while we're going through life and we're not uh, thinking about them too much, all the people around us, just like us, go through suffering. Reach out to your neighbors in their suffering. 
you found that there were some people in this neighborhood around the church that were willing to talk to you. What about all those people who lives in home, live in homes around you? You think they'd be willing to talk? Might as well give it a try. Worst they can say is go away. Reach out to them in their suffering. Weep with those who weep. Bring them the same comfort with which God has comforted you so that they too can repent. If you have embraced the comfort that God gives those who repent, you will have the best news to share with anyone that anyone in this world has. For quite some time, those who study our society have noted that the worst problem that people have in our society these days is not hunger. It's, um, it's not issues of world peace and that sort of thing. It's loneliness, isolation, alienation. People are just terribly lonely and they're depressed because of it. If you reach out and befriend people, you can help relieve the worst problem that most people have. And how could they then not ask why in the world you're doing that? And how could you not tell them? It's because Jesus reached out to you. <clears throat> Mothers led their babies that they get through suffering. John 16, verse 21. When a, mother, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Even in this life, many, many tears of suffering are washed away. For me, losing, hearing that I had diabetes at first seemed very discouraging. But as I choose to see this as from God's hand and look for the good, I see tremendous motivation to lose weight. At this point, I still have diabetes, but I am very much encouraged about losing 26 pounds. And I'm going for more. In football, we were often required to train long and hard in what seemed like silly things. Things like four-yard dashes. You're not going to believe this one. The coach would stand there with his stopwatch and time us for four yards. And he literally wants us to take a second off of that. Crazy man, he was right. We did. Nobody could beat us over four yards. And almost all football is played over four yards. Did you know that? <laughs> it's, all right. And you know what? When we won that district championship, I didn't remember any of the pain. I didn't remember any of it. In eternity, the pain of suffering will no longer hurt. All those tears will be wiped away. You will be left with the priceless lessons you have learned. In eternity, you will be grateful. And that's gratitude that God, and that's gratitude that God is using to change us now and will complete in eternity. Now, I don't have all the answers about suffering, but I do have some answers. God loves us too much to let us continue on our merry way to hell. He loves us too much to leave us unrepentant. 
And he loves us too much not to reveal himself to us. And for at least these reasons that I do understand, suffering is part of life on this sorry planet. And I understand this. You can choose bitterness or you can choose gratitude. You can be blessed or you can be miserable. You can put your hope in the temporary realities of this world and be sad, or you can put your hope in the one true God and be filled with joy. Revelation 21 verse 4 reads, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And here's the most amazing thing, folks. You don't have to wait until eternity for God to start wiping those tears away for removing the pain. If you just approach him with gratitude for all he's doing in your life, his blessings can fill your heart and you don't have to be bitter and sad. Doesn't mean that suffering won't hurt. But it does mean that that you can that you don't have to be bitter about it. You can be full of joy. Let's pray. Father, you have done great things, and we are very grateful. Uh, Father, what we deserve is the, the punishment for our rebellion against, against you. Father, we deserve for you to just stand aside and let us go running straight over the edge. But, Father, you have uh, put your arms out and gathered all of us in that you can. And, Father, we don't enjoy pain and suffering. It wouldn't get our attention if, if we did. Um, but, Father, we are so grateful that you get through to us, that even though we are in rebellion, yet you win us back to yourself. And we pray in your Son's name. Amen.